Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Today, the top four is just about as open as ever, but who's going to peak in time for the finish line? We pay tribute to the great Ian St. John, a Liverpool legend. We'll ask you, should clubs block players from travelling during the international break? And we talk training ground bust-ups as Newcastle show they might be cracking under the strain. To help me through it all, Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson and Jonathan Northcroft. How are you doing, guys? Very well, Hugh. Yeah. I'm very well. Good, good. At least one positive response. If I get one positive <laughs> response, like I say, I'm very happy on this podcast. Tom Clark sat there in complete silence waiting for others. Why, Tom? Why? What? Not, not even a smile about, for me. We're, we're, we're going to talk about training ground bust-ups today, Hugh, and I didn't want to immediately clash with Gregor already, you know, in terms of actually going at the same time to respond to you. So, good morning. Hello, I'm glad glad to be here. And I know you've been up uh, since the very, very early hours watching the cricket as well. So, um, yeah, hopefully you've had at least one or two coffees and we can we can get cracking through this for the next hour or so. Um, look, we need something to wake us up, frankly, after last night's game between Crystal Palace and Manchester United. But we are going to talk about the race for the top four. United may be stuttering slightly, but, but they're not the only ones who can't produce that consistent form right now. Man United in second, 51 points from 27. Leicester third, 50 from 27. Then it's West Ham, 45 from 26. Chelsea, 44 from 26. Liverpool a point behind them, as are Everton, but they've played 25. And if they win their two games in hand uh, from Goodison Park, then they'd be up to fourth. So it's very, very tight at the moment. Only three places available for six teams and eight points separate them. Uh, Jonathan, this is a bit like gambling on virtual horses. That's the only way I can describe it. Pretty much anything can happen in this race. Yeah, it's probably not as interesting at the, judging by last night's games as gambling on virtual horses. It's really dreadful. Yeah, everywhere, apart from Man City, all the teams look like they're sort of walk, trying to walk through treacle at the moment. They look out of ideas, mentally tired, and and there's no there's nobody that looks like they really want that top four. Um, I, I think this is always going to happen. This is we're at the end of March now, or middle of March, and these players have been playing solid since the November international break. Um, I would expect things to sort pick up again after that break. It's clear that that people need a rest. Um, looking at Leicester, you know, it was a club quite close to me. I mean, they're just a case in point where 
They've got injuries to key players, Harvey Barnes, James Madison. Um, that sort of takes the creative heart out of the team a little bit. You know, they've got Vardy at his age. Um, he's had an operation. He's, he's struggling to get back to, to what he can be. They've got Ricardo Pereira, who's, who's also sort of struggling to come back to fitness. They've got, got defenders out. I feel it's a bit harsh to almost judge teams. Um, or rather, if Man City weren't so good, it would be impossible to judge teams. But I suppose they do give us a benchmark. But, you know, I just mentioned Leicester. I think, I think everyone's in, in, in a similar boat. Um, it will. I think it will get better. It will get more exciting after after March. We'll see more of a race. Yeah, Leicester held by Burnley, um, but they're missing Harvey Barnes, James Madison, James Justin, Johnny Evans, uh, Vardy, who you mentioned. One goal in thirteen for him. Not not clicking right now for Leicester City, but they're they're not the only club with injuries, and they're not the only team who it's not quite clicking for either. Um, Gregor, it feels like there are a lot of stuttering teams at the moment. Do you, do you see? that there will be three teams that stumble over the line into the Champions League? Or can you see a team, you know, putting together a consistent winning run from here on out? At this stage of the season, we're probably should give up making predictions because <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I remember we had a conversation about this, you know, this is, feels like one of the best Premier League <laughs> seasons for ages. <laughs> and it did, you know, you look, West Ham are kind of resurgent. Leicester were on such a roll. And then in the space of a week, they 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 lost and they went out of the Europa League and they had all these injuries. It was just, just a catastrophic week. Um, you know, Everton have been on the rise. Chelsea have been slightly resurgent without fully clicking. So, I, if I was to pick any team, actually, it would be Chelsea. I still think that they've got improvement to come. Uh, possible, it's, it's possible anyway. It's most possible of any of them. Um, I think when you look around, like Leicester, it would be a stumble over the line. And looking at the run-ins, the only thing is, if you kind of go for for uh, points per game and of the opponent upcoming opponent, the remaining opponent, sorry, I think I believe Leicester and Liverpool are about the best run-ins. Um, but it's, so much of it as well is about kind of what happens in say the next, uh, as Johnny said, before the next international break. You know, if, if 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 a team puts a little run together and it leaves them in a good position when they go away, that's that boosts confidence usually. So. Um, yeah, I think my answer is I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, you tuned in for the analysis here and the insight, but I really have given up. I think we've re- also that what struck me in the last few days is I think everyone has just it's reached saturation point as well. Like I know we've said that a couple of times through the season, but you even you're getting to the point where you're looking at the the kind of C-list pundits on on the TV, or <laughs> and like and they, even they are saying it's all a bit meh. I think Gabby Logan in match of the day last night was like, it's all been a bit meh tonight. And you're thinking, God almighty. It's just, it is kind of, it's been relentless. And I think we're all probably the international break, although that's got its own issues. It'll probably do everyone some good. Tom, what do you make of, of all of this? You know, Chelsea, 10 games unbeaten. Um, and, and I think Gregor's right. Maybe they've got the most potential right now. No one up there at the moment seems to be grabbing this top four race, you know, by the scruff of the neck. What do you think that is down to? Are, are players getting tired? Um, is there fatigue, which I know the manager spoke about at the start of the season? Um, or, or is the situation, which we spoke about so much towards the start of the year, you know, is it finally taking hold of these players in terms of everything going on outside of football? Well, there's definitely been some classic Scottish fence-sitting going on this podcast so far. So <laughs> I'll, I'll try and offer some definitives, Hugh. There's definitely some fatigue going on. You can see that not just physically, 
in the players, but there's, there's clearly a bit of mental fatigue as well in terms of the ideas and the you know chan- chances created. It's a familiar theme for me to have a go at Manchester United on this podcast, but goodness me, that was absolutely dreadful against Crystal Palace last night. I mean, 20 minutes to go. And as Gary Neville said, they're kind of just dribbling and, you know, falling towards trying to crawl into the top four. It's awful, awful to watch. There's no ideas, no no, no creative play. Even Bruno Fernandes looks completely shot in the last few weeks. Um, it, but that's, so there has, there's, there's a mental fatigue, I think, as well as much as a physical fatigue. I think Gregor is right. Chelsea, Chelsea have got a very strong squad as well. You know, we're talking about injuries um, affecting teams like Leicester. When you look sometimes at the bench that Chelsea have got, if Tuchel is going down the route of setting his team up to be quite solid and hard to beat and then maybe nicking a goal and nicking a win here and there, when you look at the players he's got to come on, the players that he can rotate with in attacking positions, it, it's a it's a pretty impressive array of talent. And when you compare that to, you know, in, in Ollie's defence to Manchester United last night with uh, Cavani struggling for fitness, he's bringing on Dan James, and going right, knock it down the line, and let the let the quick kid try and get in behind. It's it's pretty inspiring stuff. So I I, I think mental fatigue as much as physical fatigue plays a part. I was going to ask you all for your predictions, but Gregor's sort of blown it out of the water now. <laughs> you know, thinks it's totally pointless. Uh, interesting, you raised no, the point have, about let's Bruno. Have a goal. Come on, let's have a goal. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you raised the point about Bruno Fernandez as a Manchester United fan. You know, seeing him start the second leg against Real Sociedad in the Europa League, having won the first leg 4-0, and then seeing his performance against Palace, you know, pretty much a week later. Look, you've all heard my views on, on Man U. I think at this point in time, they've probably got enough to get into the top four, especially with the squad of players that they have. But I'm gen- generally at the point with this top four race of thinking that those teams not involved in Europe might stand the best chance. Leicester have gone out. I think that helps them, especially with the injuries that they've got. Gives the players who are out there on the pitch a a little bit more of a rest. Um, Everton, of course, aren't involved. West Ham at the moment aren't involved, you know, and we will get to the point with Europe being back that those teams will be playing one game a week. There won't be a lot of midweek domestic football for them. And that will help them in the title race. So in, in some ways, I think... If Man United want to go out of the Europa League anytime soon, I'm I'm not totally against it. Um, to, Tom, when you're looking at the table, how how many teams are we including in this race for the top four? Do we do we go as for uh, are Tottenham written off? Are Aston Villa written off? I mean, it, you you can you look at it and you go, oh no, they're probably not going to not not got a chance. And then you look at the fixtures and think, actually, if they get four points from the next two games, they're right back in it again. And obviously, lots of Tottenham fans getting excited about a brief resurgence for Gareth Bale. So. I mean, and as you say, West Ham, you keep coming back to it and you think, if you think, okay, right, which teams are solid and are going to be difficult to beat for any team? Which teams have got a clear way, an, an idea of how they're going to play and how they're going to attack? You, you come back to David Moyes and West Ham. And I, I've got a good friend of mine who's a West Ham fan who I've mentioned before, and he doesn't want to get in the Champions League, doesn't want top four. So I half wonder whether, you know, they'll get to a position of being about fourth, fifth, and, you know, they'll just... Let's take the Europa League, lads. That's enough for us this season. Let's not let's not overshoot. He doesn't want the owners to be right about moving to the London Stadium to get Champions <laughs> League football. That's it. No West Ham fan wants their owners to be proven right on that. So they'll take the Europa just so they win the argument. Johnny, go ahead. 
No, I was going to ask exactly that. Why wouldn't you want Champions League football? I think you've, I think you've nailed it. They are actually, they are really consistent. Actually, I said no one was being consistent except Man City. West Ham are, it's, you know, they've got a limit, more limited squad, but they are making the most of themselves. I think it just strikes me the Premier League is like the Championship at the moment, where you know every year you look at the Championship and you see about twenty teams that oh, if they just win these games in hand, they'll all be in the top six or whatever, and, and then. It never really transpires. And I think, I think like the championship, it's probably about having points on the board as much as anything, which is why I think United will be okay. Um, I, I, think that, I think the two Manchester clubs are, are certs for the top four. And after that, it's, it does come down to, to runs and so on. Probably does come down to squad power a bit. I'd, I'd agree with Chelsea is just, you know, with, a, with Tuchel and making them very structurally sound, probably aren't going to lose many games and they've got a lot of firepower. And after that, it's a it's a bit of a you know. But Spurs can make a case because of Gareth Bale. Everton can make a case because of how how good Ancelotti is. There's a lot of different ways you could look at it. I was just going to make a suggestion, and this is primarily with the aim of cheering up Gregor Robertson because you know he seems a bit <laughs> downcast about having to make predictions. He's a bit bit down in the dumps about the state of things. So I was wondering whether he you'd be on board with us not just predicting who we think, but then maybe also offering who we'd like or who we think deserves, you know, the top four places. Because for me, okay. they're two very different lists. They are, they're yeah, very, absolutely. They're very, very different lists when you think about, you know, teams like West Ham, who maybe we think we've enjoyed watching this season. Uh, I certainly have, and thinking about that. So I was wondering whether you'd be on board with that. Go for it, mate. Your four that you would like and your four that you probably okay here we go well man city top in uh, both lists obviously and my my next three that i would like would be leicester in second west ham third and everton in fourth that's who i'd like i think just uh, you know and, and that and that's hard for me to say because that that top for me accepting again that i was criminally wrong about carlo ancelotti and everton at the start of the season when i think i said they'd finish in about 10th so it's hard for me to say that but what I think is going to happen, and this is actually quite weird as well. I'm sure I'll get a lot of abuse for this. Chelsea in second, Thomas Tuchel, 1-0, trundling his way up to second quietly with all that talent coming off the bench. Olivier Giroud inspired Gregor, maybe. Liverpool in third. <laughs> Liverpool in third. Leicester squeaking over the line in fourth. And in this age, in this age of doubling down on your opinions and sticking <laughs> to your guns, both in sport and politics. Oh, I'm going gosh. for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer guiding Manchester United out of the top four. <laughs> I saw, I, come oh. on. I've, got, I've, got, I've got to stick oh, with something, all right? Mate. Look, I was right about Frank Lampard. Come on. When I saw this item on our topics, I just knew that somehow it would turn into a way of slaughtering the manager who's got a team second in the Premier League, but praising the teams underneath them. From there. No, I'm just saying... I'm not slaughtering yeah. him. He seems like a lovely, lovely bloke. I'd love to have a coffee with him and um, talk about the good old days. But that, that's what I'm going for. That's what I'm going for. So that's who I would like. And then who I think, just to reiterate, Chelsea second, Liverpool third, Leicester crawling over the line into fourth. <laughs> well, look, I, I, I think Manchester United will be second. Um, I think I think Chelsea will be third. I wouldn't disagree with Tom. And I, I think I think Liverpool will, will get in. I think Jota's coming back and the injury problems will ease. I think they might actually go out the, the, the Champions League at the, the quarter stage and, and allow concentrate on the run-in. I'd love West Ham and Leicester to be in that top four. Absolutely love it. And I'm a bit conflicted because I really like Everton as a club. I think Ancelotti's just brought so much style and wisdom to the Premier League. But 
in the interests of how much fun it would be sitting smugly on this podcast, then I'd have to go for Ollie getting into fourth. <laughs> and staying for another five years. <laughs> <laughs> Gregor? I'm with Johnny, I'm afraid. I think it's going to be the, the top four. It always ends up. It's going to be City, United, Chelsea, Liverpool. But I want to have... I think, you know, I think the, the two matches of clubs are as differing as their kind of... Uh, their form is and their kind of how much you enjoy watching them they deserve to be first and second as things stand and they, I think they will be uh, I'd desperately love to see Leicester get in there because it, feel, it felt this year until like I say about 10 days ago that they had taken that step that everyone was talking about you were like you know w- what do you have to do to break into the top four and it's it's just doing things well on a consistent basis in terms of their recruitment and having a good manager and you know building a new training and everything everything they're doing at the club is right and then they were just whacked with james justin and madison and barnes and it's like you know they have a better squad than than usual than, than they have in the past but that you know no team can really cope with that really so i'd love to see them in and I, I agree. I'd love to see Everton in there. I think, I think they've been. They've, it's West Ham as well. West Ham. That that's been one of the brightest things about this it's season. Choose four. It's a top four. Okay, Greg. Choose four, sorry. not five. <laughs> Who would I rather West Ham and Everton? Go on, alienate a fan base, mate. Go on, off you go. <laughs> West Ham. West Ham. They've been up there all season, and what a story to see. Moyes' kind of renaissance. I knew he'd pick the Scotsman. I knew he'd pick, I just knew he'd pick <laughs> yeah, Scottish. Go on, Moyes. Future Scotland boss David Moyes in the Champions League next season. Um, I think I agree totally with Gregor on this. I think it'll be City, United, Chelsea and Liverpool in the top four. I think Liverpool have a good run in and Jurgen Klopp, I mean, they can't defend that badly for that length of time. So um, hopefully things go well for him and uh, their defence. And I think if they do you know, change things at the back, they will definitely be in the top four for me. I think they've got the best running out of everyone. Um, in terms of who I'd love to be in the top four, well, I think it's easy. Fourth place, of course. Respect, respect. It's got to be Jose Mourinho and Spurs in fourth place. <laughs> yes, Why? Because I predicted that at the start of the season and for so long people thought I was going to be right and I haven't let go of it yet. So come on, Jose, come on, Spurs. You've got yourself a new fan before the end of the season. I agree with Gregor. I love what West Ham have done this season. Um, I just want to see Champions League football at the London Stadium so um, West Ham fans can stop <laughs> complaining. I want them to get Real Madrid or someone like that in the group stage as well so they can go, what was the best night ever as a West Ham fan? And somewhere up there is is drawing two all with Real Madrid in the Champions League at the London Stadium. Leicester, I think we would all love Leicester to be there, not just us on the podcast, but I think football fans in general, because Greg is right. They've been doing everything the right way. And that means top place in my top four goes to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Manchester <laughs> United. Jean van der Velder at the 18th, Pep Guardiola overthinks it for the hundredth time, <laughs> falls away by losing the last five games of the season and drops out, not just away from the, the title but totally out of the top four that's the dream scenario I don't know why anyone else wouldn't have said that as well because who wants Man City with all the money to win the league again no no not for me Clive not for me um listen thank you for playing along Gregor especially on something that clearly I dragged you into doing <laughs> and we will see what happens with that top four race in the Premier League lots of miles to go including a very big game between Chelsea and Liverpool a little bit later on tonight but you might be listening after that result as well 
Uh, next up, well, we're going to talk about Liverpool. Some sad news, though, at the club. Um, and, and when I talk about Liverpool and that top four finish, I think the club under Jurgen Klopp has been doing the, the life of Ian St. John proud. You know, he's got to see them as title winners. Um, he's got to see a remarkable team, but he was part of one himself. The former Liverpool forward played 425 games for the Anfield side. He scored 118 goals, won two top flight titles and scored the decisive goal as Liverpool lifted their first FA Cup in 1965. He earned himself 21 Scotland caps. And after his football life, he had a great career in television, teaming up with the former England striker Jimmy Greaves for the hugely popular Saint and Greavesy show. Um, very sadly, he passed away earlier this week at the age of 82 following a long illness. Liverpool said they were deeply saddened by the passing of a true Anfield legend. I spoke to Alison Rudd about Ian St. John and asked her about this heartbreaking news for the club. Alison, this is more heartbreaking news for the club. Really, really sad. And I, I do feel incredibly privileged that I was able to interview him last year um, the reason for the interview was a document, a very good documentary uh, was out um, about Jimmy Greaves. And um, so we, well, he reminisced about um, how he met him. And when, when he first met him, it was lucky they got on um, England international versus a Scotland forward, but they liked each other. He said Jimmy liked Scottish people for some reason. And, uh, but then uh, they, they became really good friends because a uh, TV producer realised um, both guys were, were doing uh, media work independently and he thought they would work really well together. He, he could see there was a straight guy and a funny guy and both both with, with incredible football reputations. So he put them together. And um, one of the sweetest parts of the interview was that it was really clear from talking to in St John that he took he took he took his television work incredibly seriously and he you know he had to work hard at it you know it's not easy being the anchor when you you're a footballer you're not a trained tv person so he was the anchor and he had jimmy greaves who was just able to do what he wanted he could he could you know he'd go off piece completely and it was up to ian st john to keep the show together and um so he he, he talked about that quite a lot that it was hard work you know having to learn the ropes and um, I think what underlined it to me was we, we I introduced myself to him it was over the phone and uh, and then Ian St John went right okay you're going to count me and Alison I said oh uh, <laughs> I'm not on the TV it's not radio um, it's just a chat it's just a chat he went okay okay count me in so he, he really he, he was he was sort of going back to his days on tv when clearly someone was in his ear telling him when it was time to come in and i think that just illustrated that um it was something he took really seriously and that should be a message to everybody who thinks it's easy when television looks like it's giggles and fun there's a lot a lot of hard work has to go into it and obviously i think um even even people who are you know too young to have, have watched him play a they know his reputation but b they would have seen Satan Greavesy and they would have been able to tell from that that he he just never he just was such a nice person he never stopped laughing he was always suppressing a giggle and I think that was what made that show a success was that 
he <laughs> he was always on the verge of losing it completely and just corpsing and uh, but but he didn't and he did hold it together and he kept the show together and when I spoke to him he you know he chuckled a lot as well um, reminiscing so he just came over as an incredibly lovely guy you're right his, his media career is how a new generation of people knew him but of course Bill Shankly had brought him to the club and, and he was an integral part of such a successful period for Liverpool, really help, helping to transform the club in many ways. And of course, getting that goal that, that helped them to their first FA Cup win. He goes down in the club's history. Definitely. Um, I can't speak for every family, can I? But I, I think if you're a Liverpool fan, if you're from a Liverpool supporting family, even, even you know recently, you would have been told of the big moments, the, the significant moments. And Ian St. John would be one of those important things about your club. I, you know, I remember being told about him and his name. I mean, it sounds special, his name, doesn't it? It's got saint in it. And you think, oh, I bet he was something special. And yeah, there was a reverence about him. Um, just, just one of the absolute greats of the club. And I think it sort of helps to underline what a genius Shankly was because Shankly knew straight away he had to have him, that, that he was the player that could get Liverpool into the top division and then go further. He just knew. He was very good at identifying what the club needed and he just made sure he uh, he signed him. He just knew. He could tell. Something about Shankly, he could tell a player would fit in and work and be exactly what the club needed. And, it, and so it proved he was a proper hero of Liverpool Football Club. So many stories this week about the, the character and good nature of, of the saint as well. Alison Rudd adding to those. Alison, thank you very much. And maybe fitting that uh, as Ian St. John passes away, he, he did get to see Liverpool as the champions of England once again, where I think he would say they rightly belong. Alison, thank you so much. If you enjoy the podcast, please do rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode. And remember, for more award-winning journalism, get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. You can get it on all of your devices. Sign up today for one month free. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Next up on the game, let's talk about the upcoming international break. Scotland should be playing away in Israel. Northern Ireland should go to Italy. Wales should be in Belgium and England should be going to Albania. But maybe the most worrying for Premier League clubs right now would be the examples of South America. Brazil visit Colombia before hosting Argentina. Now, with a new variant of coronavirus uh, making it likely travellers will have to quarantine on their return, Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool boss, has suggested that the club will not allow the likes of Roberto Firmino, Fabinho, Alisson and Diogo Jota to report for international duty as they would all need a 10-day quarantine under current rules. Today, Martin Ziegler and Paul Joyce have filed a story in The Times suggesting South American football chiefs have been asked to consider moving this month's World Cup qualifiers to Europe or other countries not on the red list, with leading clubs insisting they will not release stars for international duty if they have to quarantine. I'll ask you this to begin with. Do you think these World Cup qualifiers need to be postponed? I don't think so. It would be. It's easy now to say, yes, they should for lots of reasons particularly with the conversation we just had about players being tired in the Premier League and in across all of Europe's top leagues, players are clearly showing some fatigue. It's one of those things we've talked about before on the podcast where if we could go back to the start of the season, knowing what we know now about the pandemic and things, what how would we change things? Maybe we'd ditch a few cup competitions and things. But no, I don't think you can, I don't think you can afford to, not with all the excitement that we've got around the Euros. And, you know, if you're Gareth Southgate, you've got, calls to change formation, try different players. You need you need fixtures to experiment and to try those things. So it's very difficult. I think there's perhaps, and I would hope, I'm sure there's lots of Premier League managers that hope the same, that there's some clever thinking made in terms of who is selected. But I don't, I don't think you can afford to call them off, no. Jonathan, the last thing this season needs with everything that's happened is a club versus country row. Um has Jurgen Klopp put players in an awkward position with his comments? I think he has. Um, there's something that I know, something that doesn't sit right with me about it on, on two sides, really. I mean, it's this, these are FIFA qualif- qualifiers. So I think if there was going to be a clash, it might have always been one that involved FIFA because of all the governing bodies, they seem to be the most aloof and least likely to compromise and and you know a, a sensible solution might just be to say right postpone the qualifiers or we're going to start playing certain rounds of them in, in neutral countries so I think FIFA is always going to be at the centre of it but I don't like the idea of saying to players you can't go and play for your country um, these are really important games for the South American players and for the African nations and 
you know, I know clubs pay their wages, but uh, it's a it's a really invidious position to put someone in to say that they can't go and represent the place they they, they come from, and you know, if these clubs have got big squads, why not give the players a choice and just carry on? You know, properly give them the choice, not sort of say we're giving you the choice, but actually we'd really rather you you don't give them the choice and and just deal with the consequences, even if that means. Um, taking taking players out, and it, it, it's kind of got echoes of of you know when African Nations Cups used to be in January, and, and clubs would start to try and put pressure on players not to go. I, I just I just don't like it generally. I wouldn't like it if I was one of the players involved, and I kind of don't like how it's ended up being the sort of Europeans saying to South Americans and Africans maybe maybe don't go and play for your countries it just doesn't sit right it's also not as if they haven't got a bad situation with coronavirus currently where they are i understand there are travel restrictions for people from a, a number of countries but i was slightly surprised by what he was saying because I, I could maybe understand it if it was friendlies you know it was it would be one of those situations where you sort of put pressure on to say you don't need to pick your absolute best players for this a World Cup qualifier between Brazil and Argentina is pretty much as big as it gets. So the idea that they're not going to be calling up Alisson or Roberto Firmino or Fabinho it is nonsense. I can understand why Jurgen Klopp's maybe tried to preempt it, but I, I just, you know, for, I understand. Look, the clubs play the wages. Fans will say, hold on a minute, we're giving you £200,000 a week. You need to put us first. But when it comes down to your country representing your country in a, in a match of that magnitude, I do feel like it was slightly unfair for him to put some of his players in that position. And, and his players have been working pretty hard for him in difficult circumstances this season as well. Gregor, you get the feeling with this, a lot of these sporting types of um, situations, that there might be some sort of exemption. There might be some sort of negotiation that happens between RFA or FIFA and our government to try and have these players maybe not have to quarantine for 10 days, maybe go through some sort of expedited process where they spend a few days in a hotel, have tests every day. If they come through, you know, several sets of test results, they can maybe be let go after five days. How do you think the British press and the British public would react to footballers getting an exemption on the travel quarantine rules? I think it would depend who you ask. I think the footballers have had quite a few exemptions in, in, uh, in the past 12 months. And... I think if it meant that they could see their players play for their clubs uh, when they were when they were wanted, then they would probably be okay with it on the whole. I think basically this is Klopp putting pressure on to say that you know that we need to find a solution. We can't have you know we can't have them flying off and then have uh, have an attend day isolation period, or if it's you know if there if there's several players in this position not just from our club, then you need to have a, have a discussion and think about whether these games need to be postponed. And I think they're having a, a meeting today uh, with FIFA. Um, common ball, that is. And, and so I think it's just he's basically applying pressure. And, and you know, you, you would like to think that if you, you know, <laughs> governing bodies would pan out for a moment and look at the, the bigger picture and what is what is right and what is safe. But we've seen already in the kind of maelstrom of the last year that everyone's just desperate to get their games on and desperate to fulfil the fixtures and desperate to make sure the money keeps rolling in and that everything's, you know, we're not running out of calendars, days in the calendar for fixtures to be played. So you know, I, part of me doesn't blame them for actually... For, for making this, I know I know it's it's not a great look to say yeah we're the 
we're the ones who pay their wages. And as you say, it's sort of opening up a club v countries battle. But I don't blame them because it's a bit of a, a mad situation that people are flying around the world. I think that's the first thing to say. It's a mad situation, <laughs> anyway you look at it, that people are flying to, to Brazil just now and then you know to play a game of football. But as I say, everyone's just desperate to get their games played. I just think it comes down into the category of things that we have to live with, though. If 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 we have to live with Brazil wanting to play their game in Brazil and having their full squad, I think we live with it. It's, this is this is just part of the compromise we have to make because of the pandemic. And and um, you know, it's not a perfect season. That's that's just where I'd I'd go with it. The bigger principles: let the players play. And 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 if this game has to take place in Brazil, it has to take place in Brazil. If this season has also taught us anything, is that coronavirus is going to keep having an impact on football but at the same time we want to keep playing football <laughs> so you have to be flexible and try and find solutions along the way and managers like Jurgen Klopp maybe have to have to concede a little bit there has to be a bit of as I say clever negotiation between who's selected and things like that because we're talking about maybe these fixtures in isolation but there's there's no reason this won't continue we obviously hope that vaccination are going to go down and things but we've got big tournaments potentially lined up for the summer which still haven't found a resolution in terms of where games are going to be played we still when you look at the Euro fixtures got a tournament that's being spread all across Europe so it would be a good opportunity to try and find simple and clean solutions to travel and football because as Johnny says the overriding um, goal seems to be let's get the games on so we have to try and work out a, a simple solution to that, but it, it's not easy, and it never, and it never is. And it, you know, we have to factor in Jurgen Klopp. What everything we said, he's he's in a difficult position as Liverpool manager. You know, we 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 had a big lengthy debate at the start of this podcast about him trying to get into the top four. You know, this is the these are the Premier League champions, the runaway Premier League champions. So it only only adds to the level of understandings to the pressure he's under as to why he's making these comments. I didn't tee you up to talk about this, so we'll only do it for a couple of minutes. But I'm sure you'll all have an opinion. A little bit earlier on this week, we all found out that we wanted to host the World Cup in 2030 uh, in uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, it felt like Johnny. It was just a good day to bury bad news, and maybe that's why it wasn't top of our agenda. Here we go again with politicians <laughs> and football. Hey, I mean, football's coming I mean, home. Yeah. Yeah, wait a minute. The footballs are <laughs> terrible. We ate them all. Oh, wait a minute. We want to have a tournament because it'll be jolly good. I mean, yeah, it's it, it, it's an easy slogan. It's an easy um, sort of campaign to get behind. We've seen so many governments try it. And as you say, Hugh, it's, it tends to be when there's a reason to try and distract the public from 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 other stuff. Um I, I, and the tone of it, you know, I mean, England, every time England has bid for, for world, and I, by the way, I think England should have had a, another World Cup by now or, or, not, or another major tournament. But um, every time the tone of the bid's been wrong um, in the last 20, 30 years, and this already seemed to be the outset of another kind of tally-ho campaign with lots of triumphalism that they would just turn the rest of the world off. But we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Did anyone believe that, I think it was announced in the budget yesterday, the £2.6 million, I think it is, to to kickstart the bid, the work on the bid was actually, you know, anything genuine. I was listening to Gareth Southgate earlier this week and he seemed to be as surprised as anyone else that, that suddenly we were going for the, the World Cup in 2013. All the football associations sort of said, 
Yeah, we, we also back the Prime Minister's idea that we should have the, the World Cup in 2030. It didn't really seem like anyone had had a previous conversation about this before it hit the headlines, Tom. Well, uh, I mean, it'd be far more important and impressive to sort out how we're going to get on with a tournament that's due to start in a couple of months' time than talking about a, a global international tournament in uh, in nine years' time or whatever it is. I mean, yeah, it felt like classic opportunity, opportunism uh, and politicians just using football when it suits them, as they have always done and have increasingly done in the last year to distract and take attention away from uh, the other potentially more important things that they should be doing. I mean, I just, yeah, and it, 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 it is at complete odds with the messages we seem to be getting about the idea of England or Britain taking more of a control over the Euros. You know, there doesn't seem to be, it's, it's a classic case of, oh, do you want to pretend you're excited about a thing that's completely imaginary and a long way in the future? Yeah, 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 we're well up for that. Okay, but what about the thing that's happening in three months that is definitely got to happen? And that you're hosting the semi-finals and the final. Do you fancy taking responsibility for that? No. Well, oh, whoa, 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 whoa! Don't get carried away. <laughs> no, I can't. I couldn't possibly, possibly get involved in that. What you mean with all your infrastructure and all the stadiums and all the things you've got in place? No, 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 no. Come back to us in a couple of years when we'll we'll put a loads of money into a World Cup bid with them, um, as Johnny says, loads of um, triumphalism and we're the best and we invented football and everyone will hate us again and we will lose the bid to someone else. What's not to like? Obviously, we'd love it to, <laughs> we'd love it to happen. <laughs> but the, 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 the point is the kind of chances of it happening, you know, f- for many, many reasons. Uh, and so, that, yeah, things like Boris Johnson really making promises that he can't keep again, that's, that's basically it. I think if we step into the sort of emergency scenario we managed to get the Euros here this summer... It would be great for many people. It wouldn't be for me because the next time we host a tournament, I want it to be that sort of free feeling, every seat in the stadium packed, the ability to jump all over one another, throw your pint in the air, parks packed with tens of thousands watching big screens. And until we get that, even if I have to wait another 10 years, then then I personally don't want the Euros. And that has confused Tom Clark, clearly. Well, just remind me to never go to the football with you. I'm not having you jump all over me. No, thank you. Keep oh, away. Mate, Far uh, too enthusiastic uh, for my liking. A polite little Andy, Andy Murray-style fist pump, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> if England won the World Cup, you would be getting the full treatment a la Gary Neville and Paul Scholes, mate. I can tell you now. Um, <laughs> Good mate. <laughs> anyway, thank you for your opinions on that because I know that I didn't tell you we would be discussing it, but I thought you might have something to say. Um, finally, we're going to move on to talk about Newcastle United, I think. That's in the headlines today. Matt Ritchie has apologised after an alleged training ground bust-up with his manager, Steve Bruce. It's claimed Ritchie called Bruce a coward. It's reported Bruce shoulder bars Ritchie during the disagreement. Um, before we get to the, the, the sort of details of training ground bust-ups, let's talk about Newcastle, where they are at the moment, because there is a lot of pressure on the club. They're only three points above Fulham. They could be dropping into the relegation zone very soon because Fulham unbeaten in five games look like they're coming for Newcastle United. Um, Tom, are, are the club cracking under this scrutiny, this pressure that they seem to put on themselves, whether that be through the media, whether that be through through fans? They've had a difficult season and they've been poor on the pitch for a while. You know, I watched their game against Wolves and that's that's a game you target as maybe a Newcastle side and Steve Bruce thinking this is a chance for us to get the three points that will give us a breath, bit of breathing space for a few weeks. And Wolves were largely the better team and could have won the game late on were it not for a good Debravka save. 
so I don't I don't necessarily think this is the moment it all falls apart, if you like. It, it, but it does feel like a little bit, as we were saying, teams at the top stumbling over the line. It feels a little bit like Newcastle just gradually stumbling backwards over a more consistent pressure that's built up over the season. And they've got a very difficult couple of games coming up. And when you look at statistically through the season, you know, just in terms of chances created, but also goals conceded, when you think about Newcastle and a Bruce team, the idea is that they're very solid and, you know, maybe it's boring and it's anti-football and it's not the Newcastle way. But actually, they've conceded the second most goals behind West Brom and up there with Leeds United, you know, Cavalier Leeds United, who people criticise for the way they play and being far too open. You know, when as as a Steve Bruce side in charge of a limited Newcastle squad are conceding the second most goals in the league, that doesn't suggest, you know, a very good overall, you know, foundations to survive relegation. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think this embodies a kind of instant collapse. This is the moment it all falls apart. I think it's just another, another facet in a very difficult season for them. Johnny, what do you think? Look, I mean, Newcastle, I, I can't work out how they've got 26 points. I mean, my, my dad used to have a theory that, that Rangers and Celtic used to just add points to the Scottish league table when no one was looking. And it's almost, it's almost as if Newcastle have done that. I, I can't remember them winning any games or playing well. I'm quite shocked by what, I mean, that's a really interesting start what Tom says about conceding goals. I hadn't realised it was that bad. Uh, they're, a, they're a team, they're a squad we know because of Mike Ashley's lack of investment. They've tried to do everything on the bare minimum. And I do wonder if they're, they're going to, this will be the season where they'll, they'll come undone because they've been hit by injuries as well. You know, so Maximum being out is, is so, you know, he's almost like that one genuinely creative line-breaking player and he's 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 hardly played this season. I think he's out till April. Almiron and Wilson also being out, it just deprives them of any real sort of any any pizzazz to that team and and, and it's if they're not gonna keep clean sheets, they're gonna stop conceding goals, it's gonna be really, really difficult for them. Um they've got bad fix just coming up and Fulham are, are, are coming and and you know uh, this could be the year. In fact, I think I, 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 I'd expect Fulham to finish ahead of them. This has been a kind of slippery slope for Steve Bruce now. I think you kind of re- reached a crescendo of, of uh, you know, disharmony. Uh, <laughs> that's putting it politely. And then he kind of said, right, I'm going to do it my way now. And I think, I, I personally, I think that was a mistake as well after he'd been, he'd been there, what, 18 months or something. Um, it, it puts pressure on yourself. To, to you know, you need to see the results, and we've seen we've seen a little bit of an improvement in terms of the kind of at least Newcastle playing on the front foot a little bit more. Um, but as Johnny says, they've got injuries to to key players now, and this incident, when you look at it, it doesn't reflect well any of it on on Bruce really. I think the first thing was with sending Richie on and and sort of leaving it to him to to impart instructions about a pretty major structural change in the team. A change of formation and players moving around in position. Um, uh, another thing is, you know, this has been poured over and al- analysed, and it kind of it seemed to have built up built up a head of steam. And we're kind of forgetting that this was this is there's no fans in the stadium. I mean, the one thing you notice now about football is you you cannot ignore your manager. You cannot ignore your uh, the staff on the uh, on the on the touchline because there's there's no noise. So how he couldn't pass on the the 
the information. This is before rules equalised. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't stand up. So, and then there's the second thing we spoke the other week about about Hudson Adoy and being kind of dug out by Tuchel, and and it, it feels different in this because he's, I don't know, a bit more of an old-fashioned kind of setup, and an old Matt Ritchie, someone who perhaps wouldn't. You know, you could imagine. I think you know they they refer to him as a wee Rajup in uh, in Newcastle. That's a kind of a, a term that uh, we share with uh, Newcastle's. Um, he is a little little lunatic, and I don't. You can you can tell you can tell he wouldn't he wouldn't take kindly to this. So um, I don't think any of it reflects well on Bruce. And I think it sort of, if reports are to be believed, it seems that there is a bit of a breakdown in communications and. And be- not, belief's not the right word. It's kind of, you know, it feels like he's trying to, trying to kind of clean his own reputation a little bit at the same time here, you know, by saying, right, I'm going to play this. Because beforehand as well, he said, I was playing this formation because the players wanted to, you know, I'm playing so reserved. They wanted to play the same way that Rafa did. And he's, you know, there's been a lot of kind of, it seems like a, he's kind of trying to pass off some of the issues that Newcastle have had onto the players. And this is another example of it. And I don't, th- I think probably it's not going to end well for him now. I think the fact that it's ended up in our side of the business as well, the fact that it's, it's, it's the blow by blow accounts of, of the, the stuff's appearing in papers. This is a bad sign. We've all seen it before when, when, when a, a dressing room and a manager, when it all breaks down, then the stories start coming our way whether it's through players or agents or, or friends of friends or whatever places spring leaks and the harmonious places it isn't, there's no leaks at all um, and it's that and it's just that in itself the way the reporting is played out is, is a bad sign for that regime uh, Richie it's claimed didn't get that tactical message on as you mentioned Gregor just before they conceded against Wolves but Steve Bruce did come out afterwards and say that he hadn't got on quick enough which is, I think is what had angered Matt Ritchie I don't even know if that's fair because John Joe Shelby took the free kick. Matt Ritchie had only made it about 15 paces on. He was clearly having a conversation. John Joe Shelby had spotted something, but but no one had got into their defensive um, positions if there was to be a counter-attack. And ultimately, that's what cost them the goal. So, you know, I think it was pretty unfair on Matt Ritchie, you know, the whole episode um and, and I think you're right Johnny I, I fear for Newcastle United because you just see Fulham on an upward trajectory and you see them on that downward curve go on Tom one thing as, as the guys have hinted at if this had been a bust up between two players it might be a very different story in that you're in a very you know stressful battle at the bottom of the table and I don't know whether Gregor would agree with this when you're in that position maybe if two players are having a go at each other you know, I mean, we we saw it even uh, last night with Manchester United. There was reports, and as you can, as Gregor said, with no fans, you can hear everything. You know, there was a funny little exchange between um, Harry Maguire and Marcus Rashford in terms of "get back on side, you silly so and so," was I think his exact words. Uh, but you know, you know, rows between two players happen quite a lot, and I'm sure in stressful situations when you're fighting relegation it could be argued that that's a good thing. But it, it, when it when it involves the manager and when the manager's at the heart of it, that's that's perhaps a very worrying sign. But I don't know. Gregor strikes me as such a pleasant bloke. He only ever falls out with me and that's on this podcast and we're best mates in real life. So I, I don't know whether he's ever fallen out with a manager or players when he's been in a pressure situation. Yeah, you fall out with players all the time in the changing room, when, particularly when, you're, as you say, you're in a, a difficult moment, as you say, these, these days. And the training, that happens all the time. 
But when it's with the manager and when it's so kind of one-on-one sort of clash, it happens, it happens in the heat in the moment in a game. Or But if it's because of one specific incident like this, it doesn't sort of... I don't think it's going to end well for Steve Bruce personally. And I, I think also coming on the back of the way that the 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 decision to drop Carl Darlow in goal was leaked like three days before he told the player himself. I mean, there's only one place that can come from. So if he's if he's kind of you know he can't he can't say anything about this ending up in the in the press about what happened. I kind of, as Johnny said, a blow by blow account of what happened between him and Richie because he's somehow it was it was known by. Well, Carl Darlow had to find out he was going to get dropped by reading the papers three days before Steve Bruce told him himself. So, yeah, I, I fear for him personally. I, I think they can still stay up because the teams below them are, are still going to drop points, I think. Fulham, Fulham, I've said before, Scott Parker's team have impressed me at times, but they do still struggle to score goals at times. They don't necessarily pick up as many wins as they should. Sunday is a huge game for Newcastle. Sunday will decide it. Coming up against a West Brom team that, for the first time, funnily enough, since they um, got a draw at Burnley with 10 men for most of the game, it feels like not something's clicked for West Brom. But a little bit of um, tactical harmony, if you like, has settled into the place in terms of Sam Allardyce finally implementing some of the things that he's known for, that solidity. I think Johnny said it a few weeks ago that he sometimes takes a while to to embed into a new new team and that maybe they'll come good. It's a huge game on Sunday because, as I've said, if Newcastle are conceding goals and if they're conceding goals against West Brom, who, who have struggled for goals, then then they really are in trouble. But I, I still think they just can just about survive. The thing is, Steve Bruce has been in these situations before and we've seen him under probably more pressure than this at other points in his Newcastle, even in his time at Newcastle. And he's always pulled something out of the bag. But as I say, the fact that it seems to be a breakdown in relations with the players, if that is true, then that really does bode very badly for for Newcastle between now and the end of the season. I mean, you fear for them, and it seems to be one of those stories that we can reflect back on on previous managers and previous years. There is a part of me, and I haven't publicly said this yet, that, that I almost feel like Mike Ashley might be happier to get relegated because the notorious EFL owners and directors test maybe doesn't have the same rigorous standards as the Premier League does. And so it might actually be a perfect time for him to sell the club. That is quite the conspiracy theory, Hugh. (laughs) Mike and Steve are in it together. I'm not saying he's trying to get them relegated. I would never say that he... He he wants his club to be relegated. And if I did say that, I I apologise, I take it back. All I'm saying is he wouldn't be as upset, maybe wouldn't be as upset because he's tried to sell the club for a long time. We know what his other business interests are. I don't think football is at the top of his priority list right now. If he can sell the club, then we know he will sell the club. And that could be made easier. I'm just saying it from a business perspective. If Newcastle are in the championship, I mean, I'm just saying, I'm just flowing it out there. You guys, you make your own minds up, I think's the old adage. Thank you for being with me for the past hour or so. Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson and Jonathan Northcroft. There will be plenty for us to discuss on Monday, of course. Big matches at both ends of the table coming up over the next few days. But remember, if you love the podcast, please do give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast from and make sure you get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday times for more of our award-winning journalism across all of your devices sign up today you'll get one month free go online search thetimes.co.uk 
forward slash the game. We'll see you on Monday. I'm Oliver Moody, the Berlin correspondent for The Times, here to tell you about a new podcast investigation. He signed his official letters with Heil Hitler. The man who helped to lay the legal basis for the Holocaust. If Globka were responsible for the deportation of any Jews, he should have been tried. The Spider in the Web, the Hans Globka story, out this Thursday on Stories of Our Times. Listen on the Times Radio app, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.